All right, if you would open up your Bibles to Numbers, Numbers 21. Numbers, Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. Numbers chapter 21 will be in verses 4 through 9 tonight. Uh, the, the London Baptist preachers, Charles Spurgeon once said this, He said, I know I seldom feel more happy than when I am preaching a full Christ to empty sinners. I love that because I think anyone who has the opportunity to preach or teach, it is one of our highest joys to be able to show a full Christ to empty sinners. And maybe you wonder like, well, why, Wilson, do you say that we need to look to Jesus? Why do you say that over and over and over And the answer is simply because you need to look to Jesus. That's the greatest joy. That's the greatest message. And surprisingly, uh, that's the main point of this text tonight. Uh, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Please pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look. He would look at the bronze serpent, and he would live. This is the word of the Lord, all God's people said. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And even this particular instance in the Middle East so, so long ago, you've preserved this moment for us so that we might know who you are. What a sign of love. That for over some three, four thousand years that you have preserved this and you brought it all the way here to Stillwater for this night in February, whatever date it is, 2022, to show us good news. Thank you. There is nothing small about that. So, Father, don't let us leave here with clogged up ears. Don't let us leave here with hardened hearts. But help us to see your son in all of his glory and all of his beauty and all of his loveliness. We ask all this in His name. Amen. One author once said this, We applaud patience, but we prefer it to be a virtue that other people possess. We love patience, but we like it better when other people are patient with us rather than us having to be patient with other people. Isn't that true? We love telling other people to be slow to anger and patient and kind towards us to give us a little bit of time, but we hate doing that to other people. 
And if we were to ask the question, what is the virtue that is missing most in today's world, in today's culture, it would be hard to not answer patience. We live in the age of Google and the microwave where even when Knox is crying and it takes 30 seconds to heat up a blueberry muffin, it is still just chaos at my house. We don't like to be patient. Patient. Impatience is simply as this. Our impatience shows that we think life revolves around us. It is, it is our declaration from the heart saying that at the end of the day, we will be God and we want other people to revolve around us. That's what impatience is. And the people of Israel, that's what they're struggling with here. They have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years already because they were impatient with God and because they were grumbling against God. And you would have think, you would, you would have thought that maybe they've learned their lesson by now, but the sinful heart is a lot trickier than that. And they're grumbling again. And the question is this, is God going to be faithful to a faithless people? Is God going to be faithful to a faithless people? We're going to see three things tonight, three statements. Sin is contagious. Sin has consequences. And sin needs a cure. Sin is contagious. Sin has consequences. And sin needs a cure. Leave your Bibles open and look at verses 4 through 5. Remember, who cares what I say as long as it's according to the word of the Lord. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And, they, and the people became impatient on the way, I had mentioned earlier that they were already coming off the heels of 40 years of wandering. I am 31 years old, y'all. 40 years is a long time. I'm not looking at anyone else in the room who may or may not be Aaron R. Too easy. A. Reeves. Um, not looking at anyone. Uh, 40 years is a long time to have a consequence for sin. And you would have thought that they would have learned their lesson. But once again, the sinful heart's not that easy. But yet, here they are, and they become impatient with God. And it's interesting, because look at verse 5, where it says that they were by the Red Sea. Do you remember what happened last time they were by the Red Sea? It was incredible. So God had delivered His people. And after He had parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites walked on dry land across the Red Sea to get to the other side, they turned and watched as the Egyptians fled, I mean, uh, pursued them, and the waters crashed upon them. And what they did in Exodus chapter 15 is they sang and they praised God. It was a miraculous delivering. But that's not the scene here. You would have thought that being back at the Red Sea would have made them more thankful for their deliverance, but it didn't. They, what they had to do, if I could almost like just have an imaginary, imaginary map up here, is that they were going, the Israelites were going from Egypt down here to the promised land up here. And there's this land called, the, called Edom, this nation of the Edomites that was right here. And to get to the promised land, obviously the shortest distance would have gone through the land of Edom. But God takes them around. We don't like God's plans very often, do we? Because oftentimes when it seems like, no, we need to go here, but yet God takes us down here, we feel as if He doesn't know what, we're, what He's doing, that we could do better. And so the people, they become impatient. 
Verse 5, and the people spoke against God. Watch, look at that, that language. Against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out, up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I do think it's interesting because they say we have no food, but then they say they loathe the worthless food. <laughs> you see, what is impatience? Literally, what the Hebrew text means, impatience meaning that their soul became short. It would be the opposite of how God describes himself actually in Exodus 34 when he says that he is patient would be our English translation, but literally it means he's long of nosed. In other words, he takes time before he reacts. But the people of Israel are not like this. They're not being like their God. They're short of soul. They loathed their food. They despised it greatly. They hated it. Here's what's actually astonishing about that. Do y'all know how they got their food? God gave it to them by miracle. Something that we would say, if I had only seen that, then I would be a believer. Which, by the way, that means that just because you see a miracle doesn't mean you're automatically a believer. God has been giving them food for 40 years. And they say, we hate it. We loathe it. We despise it. It's miserable to us. In other words, what they're saying is that they hate God's salvation and they hate God's provision. And you might say, wow, that's really extreme. I can't believe someone would act that way. Be careful. Uh, that happens in our own hearts. Because how often do we say that whenever the timing of events is not according to our schedule, that it's as if God is not keeping our Apple calendar according to his calendar? Maybe our finances are off or our health is not very good. And we look at God and we become impatient and we too grumble. And as the Israelites said, so we also say in our own hearts, we wish we were back in Egypt. I want you to think about that statement. They really wish they, they were back in Egypt. Hold on a second. You're telling me that instead of being delivered from some of the worst slavery the world has ever seen, instead of being there with God being your protector and he's going to go and give you the promised land, you're saying you'd rather go back there? Think about how much of an affront that would be to God, how much of a backhand that would be to God. You see, impatience says, I deserve better. We show our impatience when our heart says, I deserve better opportunities. I deserve better friends. I deserve better abilities. I deserve a better marriage. I deserve better influence or I deserve better coworkers. What is it in life that you feel like you deserve and then therefore it makes you short of soul with other people? That's impatience. Impatience is a lack of trust. It is a lack of contentment. It is the self-righteous belief that you know best. That's what it really is. Biblical counselor David Pallison, who recently passed away, wrote a fantastic book on anger and impatience, as he argues very persuasively, impatience is a form of anger. Here's what he says about anger. Anger is the reaction that incinerates marriages. 
and disintegrates families. Anger energizes gossip and it guns down classmates. It divides churches, it turns friendships into enmity, and it erupts into things like road rage. It is the stuff of every form of grievance and bitterness. And listen to this. Anger is also the basic DNA of all complaining, brooding, irritability, and bickering. Our impatience shows that we're very angry. Do you know what anger is? Anger is love. Love and anger are two different sides of the same coin. So in other words, if I love T. Helm, well then if Aiden comes up and punches T. Helm, I'm going to be angry, right? Or preach. Um, We show anger over what we love, and specifically our anger comes out when something we love is threatened. So in other words, what is impatience? Impatience is showing that we love something more than what it should be loved. And for the people of Israel, what they loved more than God was their own comfort, their own bellies. How does impatience start? It starts simply when our our standards are not met. Think about this. Here's a great way we can see impatience in the college culture. Maybe some of you are, are just simmering within with bitterness and anger because what you really love is you want to be married. But because you're not even dating anyone right now, you've become very impatient. What does impatience do? We see it there. It erupts into bitterness. You're easily annoyed. As the people of Israel show, they grumble, they slander against God and God's leaders. It promotes gossip. It promotes unbelief. It promotes mistrust in a group of people. And it promotes going on a sin hunt rather than a grace hunt. And impatience can even promote abandoning truth. Just look at some of the American churches today. God has shown us the guidelines for how we are to live out and accomplish His mission. But we have grown impatient with God and His ways, thinking that we know better for how to win the world, so we abandon God's ways, even though we might still talk about Him, and we try it our own way. What does impatience do? Or excuse me, yeah, that's right. What does impatience do? I'm reading my notes, right? I got it. Impatience is like a wildfire that just spreads so quickly, or it's like soldiers that question their commanding officer, and when they gossip to each other about how they can't trust their leader, then they can't do anything. Impatience is what destroys ministries. Impatience destroys churches and marriages and families and pastoring and counseling and evangelism and our very own Christian lives. Impatience will destroy people or people who are ministering to uh, those who are addicted. What is impatience? What does it reflect? As I mentioned, it reflects that we love something more than God and His ways. Essentially, what we could say is that these are our idols. Let's think about some of our idols. The idols of comfort, control, respect, and acceptance. You see, when we have the idol of control, here's how we will, uh, excuse me, the idol of comfort Here's how we will respond whenever our comfort is threatened. 
Think about how when people might lash out on their roommate whenever their roommate doesn't clean the house or the apartment the way they want it to be cleaned or in the timely manner they want it to be cleaned. Some of you are looking at each other right now. Uh, Think about control, the idol of control. We get angry because people don't do what we want them to do. The idol of respect. We get frustrated. Listen to this one. When we have an idol of respect, we get frustrated when people are not properly influenced by us. Or we get frustrated when someone else is more influential in their life. The idol of acceptance. You see, when we have an idol of acceptance, what we will do oftentimes is we will sacrifice truth. We will sacrifice biblical doctrine so that people will like us rather than us loving them. And what it means to love people is to love them with truth. Ultimately, who is impatience? Who is it against? It's obviously against God. You see it there. And the people spoke against God in verse 5. And essentially, whenever we are impatient, here's what we're saying to God. You're not doing your job right. You're getting in my way. Your process is bad. Your timing is off. You're not very good at being God. Matter of fact, I think I would do better. Does that sound familiar? Because that was the very first temptation in Genesis 3 that Satan gave to Adam and Eve. You can be God. And one of the ways in which we grumble against God is grumbling against the leaders that God has given us. As you see there, they didn't just grumble against God, they grumbled against Moses. If you feel like you're facing too much criticism in life, just come read the story of Moses. And when we grumble against our godly leaders, essentially what we're saying is this, you don't know what you're doing. You're not called by God to lead. He should have called me instead. I would do a much better job than you. God must have made a mistake. That's what we're saying. There was a movie about General Patton from World War II and... uh, as I have to remind my, my young Wilson self, it's not World War II, it's World War II. Uh, if y'all did that. Um, and in the movie of Patton, it shows him as he is uh, angry about having to control and command a fake army with a fake plan. Because, well, spoiler alert, D-Day in Normandy... Well, here's what happened is that General Patton was going to have a fake plan and he would take all the German forces to focus on him. But that's not where we would attack. We would attack somewhere else, Normandy, uh, with another general. Well, here's the problem with that for General Patton, because he was the top dog. He was the head honcho. He was the one who was famous. And if anyone was going to win the battle of the century, it would be him. And so he was mad, he was angry, and here's some of the things that he said, in this movie at least. He wanted all the glory, and he said that he couldn't see how his greatness would not be used in the most important battle of the century. In other words, one of the things he was saying is that God's called me to be a great leader. How often are some of us saying those same things? God's called me to lead, and unless I'm doing it right now, then no one else knows what they're doing. That is impatience. You see, what impatience is and what sin is, is sin is saying, I want it my way. And that aspect of sin is so contagious. And let me tell you something. 
Satan loves to make a group like this very impatient with each other. And I'm telling you, it will eat us up like that if we give in to it. Whether we're impatient over people because they can't get their act together and they're still struggling with sleeping around or they're still struggling with pornography or they're still struggling with popping pills or, what, or same-sex attraction, whatever it is. They're not 100% fixed right now. What are they doing? Or when we get impatient with our leaders, it's exactly how Satan can cause division. Sin is contagious. Secondly, sin has consequences. Look at verses 6 through 7. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He might take away the serpents from us. So Moses Pray for the people. Why does God send fiery serpents? Isn't that weird? Notice um, that God says essentially is that sin has wages. And as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Here's what one author says about why fiery serpents. In ancient Egypt, serpents that glow like fire or that would spit fire, it was an emblem of Egypt. It is ironic that the Lord sent the emblem of Egypt to plague the Israelites who desired to return to Egypt. Do you see what's happening here? God is essentially reversing the Lord's prayer on them. You know, in the Lord's prayer, we, we pray, your will be done. And essentially what God's wrath here is saying, if you want sin, your will be done. You want to go back to Egypt? Here it is. You want to see what it does to you? Boom. You see, one of the worst things that can happen to you is that God gives you exactly what your sinful heart wants. Did y'all hear that? One of the worst things that can happen to you is that when you say, I'm going to follow my heart, and the Lord says, fine. I'm sorry, Disney. No, no, they don't listen. Um, you see, in Romans chapter 1, there are three times where it says in that text, where it's talking about God's wrath, and it says He let them go. If your life is completely, is, it completely easy, and you're getting everything you want, and you're never being challenged, you don't really have to worry about your sin. You might can say you're a sinner, but you don't really need God. That's a scary place to be. Do you want to know what His mercy is? It's like the book of Jonah. Jonah runs away from the Lord after the Lord tells him, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah runs the complete opposite way. Here's what God's wrath would be. God's wrath would say, fine. Jonah, in the book of Jonah, ends in three verses, and that's it. Praise be to the Lord, He is holy, and He will punish sinners. But the book doesn't end there, does it? God runs after Jonah. And yeah, He does take him through storm. And yeah, He does get him in the fish where, think about how claustrophobic that might be. But He runs after him. And what God is doing here, that yes, even through wrath, He is still showing a strange grace to His people. He is showing them what sin does. 
If it was only God's wrath, God would have let them go back to Egypt and he would have parted the Red Sea again for them to get there. One of the best things that can happen to you is that you get in your life to a point where you're at the end of your rope. And when you see that your sin is too much to carry, and when you know that you are helpless unless someone else helps you, and you know that you are just a worm in this world, because then, then you can see who the Lord really is. This is what our idols do to us. Our idols, like these serpents, they bite us. You see, what we do in our idols, we take good things that God has made, and we take them to an extreme. We take them out of their own context. Think about this. Let me give you an example about what our idols do. Imagine that you have a nice cat. Some of you have cats in here. Shout out to your, your pets. I have dogs. And you have a nice cat. There are some mean cats out there. You have a nice cat. Well, when you pet that cat gently, I'm like, let me do it this way so I can look like the, kind of like the evil lair guy. When you pet that cat gently, it'll purr. It'll even lean into you. But if you're rough with that cat, what will it do? It'll bite you. Let me give you an example of how this works with our idols. Sex was created by God and it was good. But when you take sex out of its context, it bites back at you. I'm not speaking to people outside of this room. I'm speaking to people in here, by the way. That's what our idols do to us. They bite back at us. When we love fame, we might pursue it. Eventually, it will bite back at us. We never rule our idols. Our idols rule us. And they will just play tricks with you to think that you're in control. It's almost like the story of the man who actually was sleeping with a pet snake. And he finally took it to the vet one time. And he said, man, my snake's doing just the craziest thing. It's sleeping vertically. And it's just stretched out in a straight line beside me. And the, and the vet said, uh, you need to give up that snake. You know why? The snake's sizing you up, ready to eat you. You might think you have your sin under control, but it always has you under control. As a matter of fact, Satan has you right where he wants you when you think you have life the way it's meant to be. <laughs> Our idols also burn us. They don't just bite, but their poisonous bite, it burns us from within. It is that, that fiery venom within. And think about this, that whenever we idolize recognition, we get so angry whenever people don't give us the right recognition. And when we love our reputation too much, think about this, how often, and when we love our reputation too much, how often are we haunted by any memory of sins or mistakes or failures or weaknesses in our life? And it just burns up the conscience. Our idols also eventually bury us. And if I can speak on a sensitive subject. But one of the things that you do see in our culture and that you do see in our day is that when people commit suicide, often one of the reasons is because they had an idol in their life and that idol was destroyed, whether it was idol of family, money, security, reputation, friendship, power, whatever it is. And when those things are taken away, they think that they can't live life anymore. Some of you have almost committed suicide. That's what was going on in your heart. What's crazy here is look at the end of verse 7. 
it says, so Moses prayed for the people. I don't know about you, but I would not be as patient as Moses. Because they've been grumbling against Moses for so, so long. And think about, think about how incredible this is and already a picture of Jesus that Moses would pray for his enemies. We don't have that much in today's world. Because if anyone's our enemies, we want to say, you know, to hell with you. Literally. That's what we love to say. And if anyone has ever hurt us, we will never extend forgiveness to them, let alone pray for them. But that's not what the gospel does. The gospel recognizes that when you, when you know the gospel that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and that he has forgiven you when you were his enemy, when you know that more and more, it doesn't just make you want to extend forgiveness. It actually makes you want to pray for your enemies. That's hard. Sin has consequences. Sin is contagious, has consequences, and therefore it needs a cure. Look at verses 8 through 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it up on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and, and he set it up on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, they would look at the bronze serpent and live. See, God often gives very strange answers to our prayers. Notice what God does not do. Do you see what they asked for? What did they ask for? God, take away the serpents. Please, this is, this is harmful to us. This is destroying us. This is killing us. Please, God, take them away. He doesn't. What kind of a God is that? He doesn't take them away. He does something else. And some of you have been in situations where you say, if God doesn't answer to me, then I won't believe in him. And essentially, that's not treating God as God. That's still you being God. But God is after your heart. That's what he's after. And sometimes he allows very difficult circumstances, even at times when people are sinning against you, though he is not the author of sin and though he tempts no one to sin, but he is still allowing a situation to happen so that he can get after your heart. And that's what he's doing here. He tells Moses to make a fiery serpent, a bronze serpent. What's interesting about serpents is that serpents were seen by the Israelites as unclean. You don't get near them. But yet of all things, God told Moses to make a serpent, that which would be looked at as unclean, which, and, they, and you should be, you should already be thinking about what Jesus would do on the cross. God told Moses to make a serpent, and a serpent also represented sin. That's why Genesis 3 is so provocative. And this serpent would be a fiery serpent, this bronze serpent. And bronze, or maybe reddish, as some scholars have say, it represents atonement. In other words, here's what, here's what God's telling Moses. God is telling Moses that the same animal that struck you, one of them's going to die, and you're going to make that into a bronze statue. And when you lift it up, and it will represent sin, but there's going to be a promise attached to that. There's going to be a promise of atonement. You see, essentially what's happening here is that, is, 
As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And essentially, as that bronze serpent would be raised up, it was always a testimony of saying, look, it's either the serpent or you, which obviously would lead to Jesus. It's either Jesus or you. Something must bear our sins. Something must take the wrath of God. That's what what God's saying. Sin cannot go unpunished. But yet God is making a way for atonement here, as it were. And he's telling Moses, lift it up, set it up on a pole. And think about the hundreds of thousands of people that would have been there. Put it up so high because there's only going to be one. Set it up so high so that all the people, when they are bitten, all they have to do is look. Think about the free offer of that. That's grace. Make it accessible. Make it free. Make it where all the people can see it and all they have to do is look. They don't have to travel thousands of miles. They don't have to clean themselves up. All they have to do is look. And who is the promise to? Everyone who is bitten. Everyone. No matter how bad, no matter if you were the worst grumbler or the most impatient or you didn't really do anything, no matter how bad, no matter how far off, it's a free offer. And that's what the world hates about the gospel because we hate giving grace to our enemies. Once again, just read the story of Jonah. We don't like seeing our enemies get off the hook. But what grace does is that it says, either Jesus is going to take that wrath or you will. And spoiler alert, this is leading up to Jesus. I'm going to get there and I'm going to explain it. I just can't help it. It's always leading up to Him. God tells them, if anyone sees that snake, they will be healed. And in verse 9 it says that everyone who looked at the bronze serpent... They were healed. And I love this, that God, once again, He doesn't say, go and clean yourself up first and then look at the snake. It's not like dishwashing. You know, maybe the girls understand this. Shout out to my girls. Uh, I didn't understand this when I was in college, so guys, we're not very good. Uh, But when you wash dishes, you're supposed to do a little bit of pre-washing before you put it in the dishwasher. Uh, That's what helps clean them a little bit better. But here's what the Gospel says. There's no such thing as pre-cleaning before you come to Jesus. Did y'all hear that? You don't clean yourself up first before you come to Jesus or you do half of the work until you come to Jesus. You just look. God is not saying this, oh Israelites, beat yourself up first and then look. He is not saying cover yourself up first, then look. He's not saying heal yourself. He's not even telling them fix your past and then look. And he's definitely not telling them this. Just generally admit you're a sinner, but you don't have to look. Even Satan knows he's a sinner. You're not a Christian if you can just merely admit you're a sinner. You must look somewhere. You see, this word look in verse 9 is also used in Genesis 15 verse 5 whenever God told Abram to look to the heavens. And as numerous as the stars are, that's how numerous your children will be. It's the same word used in Jonah chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, Jonah, when he's in the belly of the fish, says, I shall again look upon your holy temple. In other words, what does look mean? It's dependence. 
It's dependence amidst a desperate situation. When you see your sin, and when you see how desperate you really are, what do you do with that? You look. And you find healing. And it's complete healing and it's free. And we only see that it's a one-time look. You see, think about what would Jesus have thought? What would Jesus have thought when he read this as a young man? When Jesus is learning more and more about what he would have to do to save his people? Because even as a human, he would still have to grow. It wasn't just automatic knowledge to him, even though he was God in our flesh. And as he would read this, he would read it and he would say, the one who is lifted up, that would be me. And that's actually exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. You see, what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 3 is this. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus in this moment is that as the serpent was lifted up, so Jesus Himself will have to be lifted up on that cross. And that's exactly what would happen. That on the cross, as Jesus is lifted up, He's the one who would take the wrath of God for our sins. He's the one who would be the most visible person, the free, the free look where it would say, if you just look at Him, that's how you can be saved. He's the one who has to take all of God's wrath for you and me. It's an amazing thing. And it's actually the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 where it says that he would be the snake crusher. Isn't it ironic? The promise promise in Genesis 3.15 that said that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent, but yet he would have to be lifted up like a serpent. That's what he would have to do. And that's such good news. Martin Luther says this, Whenever I feel remorse in my conscience on account of sin, therefore I look at the bronze serpent Christ on the cross. Do you know what this good news means for you and me? It means that no matter how far off we are, no matter how much sin has bitten us and burned us or it's attempted to bury us, no matter what you've done last semester, two years ago, or whatever, you can look at Jesus and you can be saved. Amen? That'll preach right there. And it's only a look. It's only a look. It's nothing else attached to it. It's totally free. The same way that someone has been saved and walking with Jesus for 50 years, someone 50 seconds before death, if only they do is just look to Jesus, they'll be saved in the same way. Come on now. now. We're going to get going. Rich, uh, 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 I'm blanking on his name. Uh, He's a Puritan. His last name's Baxter. Y'all thinking about my dogs. Um, (laughs) He says this, Our thoughts of the infinite goodness of God should be proportionate to our thoughts concerning His infinite power and wisdom. In other words, yeah, it is Richard Baxter. There we go. In other words, what he's saying is this, Sometimes, some of us in here, we only focus on the wrath of God and the punishment of sin and only His holiness and only His power. But what Richard Baxter is saying, you must also focus on his goodness and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. And some of you are desperate for that. Do you want to know why the numbers of shame have risen so astronomically high in the last five to ten years? Is because we haven't proclaimed this. And we're constantly trying to look within for validation rather than look without. 
what you must realize is this. It is more important for you to believe that there is forgiveness in Christ than it is merely to believe you're a sinner. Do you hear that? It's very important to believe you're a sinner. You must. But it is more important to go beyond that also and take your sins to Jesus, trusting there's full forgiveness in him. Amen? Amen. That's what you have to believe. We have to learn to look more and more and more and more. And it's not just for unbelievers, it's for the believer too. You see, there's no other way of salvation than to look. What's amazing is that that means that no matter how burdened you are by your sin, no matter how burned you've been by other sinners, no matter how bitter you are towards others, no matter how buried in despair you are, or no matter how beaten by shame you are, everyone in here, I don't care if you're in jail, been in jail, going to jail, or you've slept with someone, about to sleep with someone, whatever it is, look. And you will be saved and you will be cleansed. And all you have to do is look. And you can even do that literally right now in your seat. Jesus says in John six thirty seven, Whoever comes to me, I will never, and the Greek says, never ever cast out. Is that an amazing promise? Charles Spurgeon once again says, Eternity shall not reveal a single instance in which Christ Jesus cast away a sinner that came to him. That's why we need to look to Jesus. In the second movie, The Lord of the Rings, when Aragorn and his company are fighting at Helm's Deep, you remember towards the end of that battle that they're in the thick of intense desperation. They know they've been overrun. They know their enemies are about to strike them down. But then Aragorn remembers the promise. And he remembers the promise from Gandalf when Gandalf had earlier told him and he said this, Look to my coming at the first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And when everything seemed lost and darkness seemed to have won the day, they remembered the promise at the last moment. And lo and behold, they look up the mountain to the east. And who's there? Gandalf. And an army that would swoop down and knock out all darkness. Do not clean yourself up. Do not try to be enough. Do not try to confess enough, repent enough, or whatever it is that's enough. You're never going to be enough. Just look. Look and you will be saved. Look and you will be cleansed. Look and you will be forgiven. And that is the promise for everyone in here. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would take this sermon, take this text, and write it upon our hearts. Help us to look and look and look to Jesus who was slayed for our sins, who died on the cross, who took your wrath, who has paid the penalty. And as we look, slowly but surely would you begin to heal us. And no matter how deep of a struggle we have, help us to trust that looking to you is the most powerful thing in the universe. And it's not because of how strong our look is, it's just because of you, Jesus. So we do ask, help us. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.